a big episode for me that ends so abruptly yeah i thought whenever we're recording filmed out yeah no no it it just it just cuts out at the Uh, end but you know and then when we do it later but anyways this is a big episode uh my coach is in the is in the studio mr danny drink feels weird saying your full name by the way (laughs) (laughs) um danny drink so he's here with us uh to talk a little bit about his history um his uh upbringing in martial arts and just kind of goof off with us a little bit thank you for coming in man it's great to be here guys i'm i'm excited I, i'm really uh really fired up with the whole ambiance of the studio <laughs> yeah. it just is uh it's perfect it's yeah. great 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 way to spend a sunday afternoon i appreciate it i've uh, i've mentioned before that this is part of my goal to uh make sure I bring down everybody else's credibility around me by bringing them onto the podcast. <laughs> um, and so I think it's good. Yeah. Is it, it's still going. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> by association, trying to just ruin everybody else's credibility by being on here. Um, but yeah, I appreciate being on and, uh, this is really cool. Yeah. I'm excited too. Um, I'm not even from Arkansas. I'm originally from Louisiana and I moved up here in 2009 and prior to moving up here, um, even I knew about, uh, your history in Arkansas as a martial art, uh, a martial artist, and even like your, you know, your reach within the martial arts community here in Arkansas. Um, and I wasn't even living here at the time. What, what part of Louisiana? <clears throat> so I'm originally from Shreveport, Bossier, mm-hmm. uh, but I've got family down around Lafayette and Church Point as well. And so I was moving from Shreveport, Bossier at the time um, and uh, where I was training jujitsu at um, some of the guys from the Taekwondo world um, who trained with us had um, had trained with you in, in years past and stuff. So you know, Who were I, you training with in um, Shreveport? So I was actually in West Monroe at the time training when I first started training jiu-jitsu. Um, John Blunt? Yep, exactly. So I started with him. Um, and then um, Mike Braswell was one of my training partners for a long time. Um, who He runs a school in Bossier now. And uh, so a lot of those guys from the Taekwondo world, including Mike, um, had mentioned you and knew about you from way yeah. back then even. So I think Braswell's first experience with jiu-jitsu, if I'm not mistaken, was at one of my seminars. Yeah, I think it was. And, I think and you I mentioned knew- that. I knew him as uh, a kid growing mm-hmm. up, you know, trained with John Drew. And uh, John used to have me in for seminars and it was, would cross train. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of, there's a lot of Taekwondo guys that don't, but there's a lot that do. Oh, yeah. And uh, Braswell was always, uh, it's funny, I was just talking about, uh, I was talking about Braswell on the phone earlier, sharing some old stories because the kid liked to train. I mm-hmm. mean, he, he would work out really, really hard. Yep. And there were times we'd call each other up and go, Man, I just ran bleachers for an hour, and then you know we flipped tires. And he was uh, uh, kind of prior to CrossFit hitting the thing. Jim Jones, yeah, he was real into the Jim Jones stuff, and yep. so we kind of share our uh, our crazy ass workouts that we mm-hmm. were doing, trying to kill kill ourselves. And he, uh, I still try to stay in touch with Braswell from time to time. I, he just a, a phenomenal martial artist. He's sick he jiu jitsu. He's got really really he's good got really good jiu jitsu. Um, he he had a stint as a as a pro MMA fighter as well and had a, a decent record. Um, I can't remember the off the top of my head what his record was, but I know that it was decent. And uh, and he fought on Bellator and and did some fights for No Love Entertainment down south with uh, 
um, Rich Kalmini and those guys, and, and he put it out there. So he did it all. You know, he oh yeah, he definitely was a true martial artist, and he retired as from MMA years ago, and now he just teaches. He's got he's got some bum knees and stuff, so he doesn't get to train as much, but he still runs his academy, and it's very successful there in Bozier. So, um, but yeah, my, Mike and I go really far back. He was one of my first when I was a white belt. He was a blue belt. You know, mm -hmm. now he's a first degree black belt. So right. that's where we've come from from there. So. Um, no, that's a that's that's a cool history. You know, it's a small world in mm -hmm. the community. They uh, and of course back in the day, and there just wasn't. You had to really go out of your way to find anybody in jujitsu, and you mm -hmm. knew everybody. I mean, there was a time when I knew everybody in about a four or five state area that was capable of producing an MMA fighter. Mm -hmm. um, the original jujitsu. I mean, it, when it first hit, like my first opportunity to train. Uh, First time I ever did a, a real BJJ seminar was like January of '91 with Hori and Gracie. Yeah, and uh, nobody knew what jujitsu was. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I put on the first all amateur MMA show in the nation. I mean, that just uh, there was a guy named Eddie Goldman who was writing for a, a newspaper, a rag called uh, the Valley Tudo News, mm -hmm. and he <laughs> called me from New York and interviewed me about putting on a show. And I thought that was really strange that somebody, I mean, like, how did you hear about my show in New York? And at the time, even the first UFCs were pro-am. Like the first time Tito Ortiz fought, he fought as an amateur on the UFC. Okay. Which a lot of people, oh, I didn't, I didn't know, know that. that. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, even the original UFCs were pro-am. So almost all the MMA shows in America were pro-am. So to do a straight amateur show was unusual. And yet, if you look at boxers, I mean, boxers get really, really good because by the time they turn pro, they've had, you know, 100, 200 fights, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they've had that opportunity to compete. So that's what made that kind of, of unique. Now, today, you fast forward some years later, because <laughs> really ancient history when we started that out. Um, man, I can't keep track of the garage MMA gyms yeah. in Sherwood. I mean, yeah. there's everybody and their dog is is doing some form of training. And it used to be really, really difficult to find good jiu-jitsu training. I can remember doing fundraisers and, and, you know, we would do whatever we could. And I'd fly to California and get mm -hmm. a private lesson with Go-Kart Chavichian. Oh, yeah, or Go Al, yeah. yeah, Alan Goes. Um uh, you would hit if you heard about somebody that knew some jiu-jitsu doing a seminar man you jump your butt in the car and drive mm -hmm. to st louis or drive to dallas or drive to memphis or wherever you could find somebody that was uh you know bringing grapplers in that honestly mm -hmm. knew something so now man i mean the information age it's it's crazy you get it is more videos in your inbox open up yeah. your email yep. and you can't hardly keep track of all the technical stuff mm -hmm. that you get is just teasers somebody know? was trying to tell me like you see that video the other day that guy doing this like dude i've seen about a hundred videos yep. since you started <laughs> talking like <laughs> i'm watching one right, right now as we're talking <laughs> yeah how no, am i supposed to keep it up has changed a lot um and and i started in 2007 so you know only only 12 years 12 13 years ago and johnny you you were right around the same time right mm, yeah yeah right? And, and even in 2007, when I started um, as a white belt, it was still, it was almost impossible to find a black belt who was running an academy in your town. Most of them were brown belts, purple belts, and they were under a black belt. Um, in our case, we were under uh, Professor Alan Hopkins out of uh, Mississippi under Team Hopkins. Um, but I remember trying to find my, as a young generational 
uh, grappler trying to use technology to find those things out there. And there were some, there were some DVDs out there, but that was it. You weren't, there was no YouTube. And so if you wanted to learn through a video, you had to buy the DVD and they were 50, 60, 70, hundred, you know, hundred dollars. And this was even back. It was so popular that they were actually, you were, you could get the Pan Ams and the worlds on DVD. Yeah. And you know, I got for Christmas one year when I was a blue belt, my dad got me the, uh, I think it was the 2009 Pan Ams or 2008. I know it had Cobrini on the front and that was a Christmas gift that I got. And I remember I just, that was what I had. I would watch these videos, these competition videos over and over and over again and try to figure out, okay, what are these guys doing at the highest level? Because we didn't have a lot of access to it. And that was in 07. So I can't imagine for you what it was like to try to find that same amount of information with no technology. No, the information simply didn't exist. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu has evolved so much because... um, just put it over there. When you first... Uh, I like the way I'm doing it. It's the most <laughs> inefficient way to drink. <laughs> yeah. the uh, there, there wasn't... There just simply wasn't the information out there. And originally, <clears throat> it was all self-defense or Valley Tudo. Mm-hmm. You know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu wasn't sport. There, there wasn't any sport. The first jiu-jitsu tournament I ever saw put on. And it was... There weren't there weren't a lot of competitions, you know, there wasn't the information dump that you, that you have now. So it was really tough. You know, you talk about DVDs and thinking, man, we used to just, you know, glom over a VHS tape. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, exactly. You know, when was, dinosaurs roamed the earth, who was, this is was how we got our information. Henzo and um, Craig, Craig Kukurk? Kukuk, yeah. Kukuk, yeah. That was like, that was a VHS, and I think it was Henzo and Craig that yeah. did, did, did their uh, their VHS with all their stuff on there. Um, I have a question for you, Mister Jing. So, um, for I mean, a lot of you, this is so stupid. It's gonna piss me off every time you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch is like trying to like drink his Taco Bell, Dr Pepper, but like slipping it underneath the microphone on this like <laughs> so stupid. Okay, um, for for those of you that don't that don't know the history about of Mister Jing, and I'm not gonna go through the whole. History, but the I mean, honestly, the the father of jujitsu in Arkansas. You came from a very traditional background as far as like doing taekwondo. Um, I think you have 130 black belts in different <laughs> um, martial arts. Um, but you've found I've, it seems that you've found and it's it, it's a very uh, it's a very smart scheme you got going on, Mister Dream. <laughs> no, um, just a niche of bringing a lot of those traditionalists over to the dark side, starting to learn some jujitsu and starting to um, incorporate that into their program. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think it's something that's honestly kind of overlooked is a lot of times people kind of write off the traditionalists and it's like, no, they're doing a different art. Why don't you introduce this new art to them? And most of them will, uh, will pick it up and start doing it as well. Um, how much pushback have you received from maybe the, traditional martial arts community, um, trying to, uh, kind of, I guess, preach jujitsu to the, to the masses. You know, it's funny. Uh, so I didn't get into the martial arts to be a stylist, right? You know, mm-hmm. I was a small skinny kid that just wanted to keep my lunch money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I, I actually had trained a little bit as a kid, like when I was seven years old, you know, with my dad. And at that time there were just wasn't very much, there wasn't very much martial arts, anywhere and we lived in north little rock the school we were going to was over uh uh off of mapleville pike and it was it was a long drive and my dad's hours changed so 
I got a taste, but I didn't really get to keep on. Then uh, fast forward, I <clears throat> dabbled with some boxing. I got back into martial arts, got into uh, Taekwondo. And, you know, I'm going in to learn self-defense. I don't really know anything. You know, when especially back then, nobody knew about style. It was that karate stuff. Everything was kind of just lumped under karate. the generic term karate, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, even today to the uninitiated. I mean, you know, we do it all the time, so we're highly aware. And it's so funny when, you know, people get offended because their jujitsu is referred to as that karate, you know, that ground karate. It was like, no. To the day my mom died, she still thought I was a black belt karate. So Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. Well, so to your point, I, you know, big fan of Bruce Lee. It was interesting listening to you guys talk a little bit about that. Well, we need to dive deeper and I'll share some some, some stories. Yeah. Um, but I like the whole out fighting, in fighting, trapping, grappling, and on the mat. So my deal was always is to be a well-rounded martial artist. I needed to be able to deal with various ranges of fighting. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, uh, I tell people all the time, if I knew, you know, if you're into it, my original state of deal was to be able to defend myself. And if I knew what kind of fight I was going to be in before I got there, there wouldn't be a fight. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Don't I mean, go to that place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Danger. So I feel like, you know, I, I got into uh, I got into Taekwondo and really at the beginning and I loved it. I, I mean, my first love in the martial arts was kicking. Uh, you know, I can remember watching the old uh, Chuck Norris movie with Bill Wallace, Bill Superfoot Wallace and. He's in the splits and kicking his leg up in the air. And I just thought, man, that was really so cool. Fast forward years later, and I've got an eight degree black belt with Bill Mm -hmm. Wallace and, you know, talk to him and train with him regularly. But uh, that that kicking I thought was really cool. But when I go in for self-defense and what I was taught was kind of martial sport. And then as I dove deeper into it, I felt like. Well, it's kind of watered martial sport, you know? I mean, you hit somebody and they yell stop. Right. And, and in real fights, you hit somebody mm-hmm. and then that's when it gets interesting, mm-hmm. you know, because they probably want to hit you back. Yeah. Uh, so from from Taekwondo, I got into kickboxing. And then from kickboxing, I got into Thai boxing. And like in the early 80s, nobody knew what Muay Thai was. You know, I mean, that was that was like a big you know, that was kind of the underground stuff. And then from the Thai boxing, I can remember getting my hands on uh, on a shoot fighting tape that had a guy by the name of Bart Vale on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was crazy. These guys are fighting in Japan. And now keep in mind, this is years and years before the first UFC, you know, I'm talking the late 80s. And this guy is like headbutting people into the ground and saw they were doing submissions. But they were also, I mean, then Bart Vale was a big athletic cat in his day. I mean, you know, we're talking to a dude that's 260 pounds. I saw a guy grab his leg and he jumps spin and heel kicks the guy that's holding his leg. And I was like, well, that's pretty impressive. He dropped him. Mm-hmm. They're on the ground and, and, you know, somebody's got him in his guard and he puts his hands on the dude's arms and then headbutts him repetitively that's into awesome. submission. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, that's a, that's not a guard pass that you see, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. currently being not taught. Yet. Kids oh. class next week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'll rack. It'll ruin. It'll just ha- absolutely wreck all 10-year-olds, I'm telling you. Yeah. They, uh, they will not Never be able be to Never be submitted hold. by a 13-year-old again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but I, but that's what my, my thing was, was to be a well-rounded martial artist. Mm-hmm. So, in going in, and I just kind of approached that, I 
last uh, summer, I was uh, I received my ninth degree in Taekwondo, which in in ninth degree that's Grandmaster. So I would tell you that's my rapper rank, you know, Grandmaster Flash. Right. Uh, it was part of a journey though, for sure. In uh, in that, and then uh, when I I was inducted into the official Taekwondo Hall of Fame, I went over to Bangkok, Thailand, and got uh, inducted. And in. they do it in various cities around the world, and it just happened to be in Thailand. Well, my picture when they put it up was me wearing a black Brazilian jiu-jitsu gi in a Muay Thai stance. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, that's eclectic. That kind of summed yeah, up my whole career. Right there. It had, uh, yeah, it, looked, it had nothing to do with Taekwondo, but it, it did kind of sum up my career. I've always tried to tell people, look, it's all about just learning. It's about training, mm-hmm. you know, and I still, I enjoy, I enjoy kicking. I enjoy stretching. I, I still enjoy, uh the structure of a traditional martial art. I tell people, look, these traditional blocks are just frames. We frame on the ground. When we're doing jujitsu, it's all about building frames. Well, if you understand what you're doing with some of your stand-up art, you're you're doing frames, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a solid punch. If you mm-hmm. want to have a good kinetic transfer of energy from your from your fist into somebody's face, you, you need to understand framing, you know, because, if you know, your striking is just your – high speed or rapidly framing into somebody, if you kind of think about it like yeah. that. Well, what it does is it 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 kind of meshes your arts. So, no, I, I, I do feel like I have enjoyed sharing my love of just training mm-hmm. and sharing my love of martial arts with other people. And it's never been to, like, convince people to change arts. Mm-hmm. It's look, you need to, you ought to flesh out your knowledge. And it, and it kind of goes yeah. back to that out fighting, in fighting, trapping, grappling, and on the mat. I mean, you might be a great long distance fighter, but it doesn't do you any good if somebody football tackles you yep. on the ground and has Agreed. you, has you down. And then, and likewise, man, there's times that, you know, I mean, grappling because of your environment from a self defense perspective isn't going to be what you want to do. You know, I love to duck hunt. And so if I'm right. in, in waders waist deep going to the ground is probably not what I need to do. You know, and these are situations that Mr. Drink finds himself in on multiple <laughs> occasions. I've asked the question where he's talking about, like he, he always preaches like you should carry a ballpoint pen around just in case you need to stab somebody in the throat. And I asked it, I started to ask, I was like, Mr. Drink, how many times have you actually had to stab somebody in the throat with a ballpoint pen? And then I realized Probably a lot. <laughs> I've never been in that situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm. I'm uh, but you know, you never know. That's I'm just sending a question the, uh, to people that you hang out with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, well, look, I'm here with you guys. <laughs> yeah. What more do that's, I got to say? You that's know strike I mean? number one. Yep. Yeah, nailed it. Um, it. It's always interesting to have that conversation. I because I went. Um, when I started my martial arts journey, it was kind of the same thing. I got into Taekwondo and stuff. And, uh, when I was a young kid, all for the same reasons you were talking about, you know, watching, uh, blood sport and watching kickboxer with, you know, watching every Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, every Chuck Norris movie, Delta force, all that documentaries, documentaries. <laughs> and, um, and for me, it was the same thing when you're talking about, um, the kicking and stuff, because that really looking back, even on my own, uh, interest, like that was what attracted me to that of martial art was like the, the, the the ability to do these, even when I was watching Power Rangers growing up, um, all the flashy <laughs> kicks and, and things like that, that was really appealing to me. Um, and I discovered jujitsu kind of on accident because I went to, when I was uh, on active duty for the military, I went to a, um, a Tito Ortiz Ken Shamrock fight at a Hooters. 
and I'd never seen MMA. And this was, this was 2006. And that was the first time I'd ever seen grappling. Um, other than, uh, I, one of my old supervisors showed me the uh, UFC one with Hoist. And, and I say this as a joke. Um, but I thought Hoist was like, for the longest time, I thought Hoist Gracie and uh, Oscar De La Hoya were the same people. <laughs> I didn't know they were two different people. I have to tell Cecil, <laughs> one of my students, I have to tell him almost every week that there have been other UFCs since that one. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you seen this Hoist Gracie guy? And I'm like, Cecil, there's a lot more UFCs since that one. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that was my first introduction to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was when I saw Hoist. And I honestly thought he was a Mexican guy. I didn't know Brazilians existed or anything like that. I was a young kid. <laughs> I, I know it sounds weird to say that, but... You know, when you're 19, 20 year old kid in the military, the Air Force does teach you something. Yeah. And See the um, world. I was just like, and then I saw Oscar De La, he, uh, Oscar De La Hoya fighting boxing. I was like, man, that guy really does do everything. <laughs> <laughs> he really gets around. But, um, and then moving forward into that, I, I went through a phase where I was like, no, jujitsu is the only thing that matters. Like, this is the only thing you should do. Um, and I went through that phase for a long time while I was training with Blunchy and those guys. And then, um, as I've matured in my jujitsu, I'm kind of, finding myself going back to where I'm realizing, you know, like what you said, carrying a ballpoint bin around all the time, you know, um, the combatives piece to that, the, the self-defense piece and, and using jujitsu as one of those options within a plethora of options available, you know, cause we, it really is like a superpower. Like when we have this martial knowledge, it's like a superpower. And I think about this all the time, like the things we take for granted, uh, the way that we know how to use our body to hold people in place while still using our hands, you know, like, things like that, that the average person just doesn't know. And we don't, we take for granted, I think. Um, but you mentioned the ballpoint pin thing. And when I went through the air force combatives program at the air force Academy, we had a, an entire lab where we went through, uh, with a, uh, a pig carcass and we would stab it with different things to figure out which <laughs> ones work. Weird. Dude, it was, you just stabbed a pig carcass. Well, yeah. Um, but it was to, it was to check, like it was, so just that, to see how difficult yes, it is to actually stop something. Not Still. just that, but like to show you improvised weapons, how ineffective a lot of improvised weapons really yeah. are. Like mine was, and I took also a, to create psychopaths. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I took a coat hanger and I filed it, a wire coat hanger, filed it down and wrapped it with tape. And, um, I was like, this is absolutely going to work. Like this is going to be a great tool. The second I stabbed the pig, the coat hanger shot out the other side of the, of the tape and it never went in. Uh -huh. And so, um, but a, uh, a, one guy had a, uh, an apple peeler. That was the the best weapon. Like the way that it was, that, yeah. it made such a good gash and stuff. And then any screwdriver, any screwdriver is a great weapon. Mm -hmm. Like, but, um, we use, and it was people, we use some ball preaching to the choir over here. No, yeah, I'm, no I'm loving it. Yeah. Mr. Drink knows what brand screwdriver oh, you can buy. Like, <laughs> well, it was no. really cool to see that, you know, cause we think that like one, the, the, the reality of taking a device of any type and stabbing it through human flesh, we all think we can do it mm. until we're faced with the opportunity to have to do it. Mm. And um, I had a conversation with a, uh, a special forces guy. Uh, he was 10th group special forces for the Green Berets. And he ended up having to use combatives and he had to push his thumb through a guy's eye. And he said that just prior to it going into the guy's eye, he was all in. And then when he felt it squish and explode in his fingers, he got nauseous. I mean, this is a special forces guy and having to do this to save his own life and that reality of what he was actually doing, hitting home with him. And in that heat of battle where he's trying to save his own life, he even got squeamish at the feeling and texture of the eye, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that the average person um, doesn't consider. 
you know, they walk around with this idea that, well, I'm a black belt. I can do anything. I, I, there's, I would absolutely defend myself at all costs. But we still have. And statistically, that's not true. Mm-hmm. What, what they find um, <laughs> in, in looking at fights, guys tend to fight clean. Yeah, you know, who, yeah. who fights the dirtiest are women, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they will because they don't know anything about fighting. And so when they go to they hear, you know, claws and rip ears and stuff like that, fish hook, um, they tend to naturally do because that's what they've been told to do. Where guys tend to have more of a sense of fair play when they fight. Yeah. So in when you're looking at. Actual fights. What do people honestly do in real fights? Which we have that information to us more so now than ever before. Big Brother's watching. I mean, there's a camera everywhere. Mm-hmm. Every cell phone's mm-hmm. a camera, video. So we look at, we have more real world data about what really happens in real fights. And you don't see that kind of stuff happening. The average person, and it goes back, you know, the average guy is 4,000 times less effective in a fight mm-hmm. than what he thinks he is. Yeah. Be. You know, everybody's got that, ah, uh, that idea. But to put, to perpetrate real violence on somebody goes against, I mean, unless you're in, in, hey, look, the, the sociopaths live and they walk among yes. us. So <clears throat> that's the hard part. <laughs> We're training them over here. Man. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the hard part, though, is that if you don't have that capacity, you know, for for violence and or haven't really thought about it and, and tried to bring it, bring it out. There's a good chance you won't. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and so do you think that a big piece of that is, is that once the human element of reality kicks in, like we, we still naturally don't want to harm our fellow man. Do you think that maybe like somewhere back here in the amygdala or something, mm-hmm. you know, where no, I think that's part of our human experience. And then it, it, and the scary part is, is that there's a lot of people that don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Ted Bundy. Uh, I mean, we can go on. Yeah. <laughs> Dahmer. Know? Dahmer. Yeah. Mitchell Hall. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think there's a, I think there's two, there's a certain point when you realize like, I've probably done enough. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And when you have to go that extra mile to like actually kill somebody because you know, they're not going to stop. Mm-hmm. Then it's, I think that's whenever you're like, I have to force myself now. Like it's like yeah, shooting a, a dead, or like a horse that's, you know, that's dying and then you just need to put it out of its misery. It's like, oh shit, <laughs> now I have to do this, you know? Um, I've never killed anybody though, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Me either. Yeah. yeah. I broke a guy's foot one time and got up like shaking my hands about to throw <laughs> up off the mat. <laughs> it was in a tournament. I'm like, ew. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we'd, we've talked a little bit about the gouging of the eyes. I can't, I can't yeah. talk about that without thinking about we. Uh, so the podcast, the Rough and Tumble podcast, we found the name from a style of fighting called American Rough and Tumble. And I think I had told you a little yeah, bit about it. Yeah, you did. It. I remember you telling me about and, that. And uh, these motherfuckers would like, their goal was to gouge an eye out. That yeah. was the KO. That was the knockout. So the moral of the story is we all need to start training more American Rough and Tumble. <laughs> yeah. More often. Yeah. yeah, that's where the real, like you were talking about ripping an ear off. Like it, that's such a strange concept. Um to to commit to Mm. you know because it can be done obviously but it's like i think whenever the reality of how difficult body parts are to pull off the body you know like um when we were doing that lab where we were stabbing we found that um you can do a lot of damage to the skin but it takes a lot more effort to do damage to an organ 
you know, to actually penetrate through the rib cage, to actually penetrate through the chest plate and, and things like that, you know, and that's what we found in that lab was with most of the devices we were using for improvised weapons, they were making it, they were all superficial wounds. They weren't anything that would actually uh, dispatch the human from this earth, you know, and that was something that was what I found surprising. Um, with the screwdriver though, it pretty much found its way in there every time. So <laughs> I had a the guy that taught me how to throw knives, taught me with screwdrivers. And I saw him throw a slot tip screwdriver through the radiator of a car. Oh, shit. And I mean, you could, and, and I used to have one of my old gyms. I had a solid core door, um, which you can get. I mean, it's not the hollow ones, solid door. Used to keep that back. We'd go back there and, and would throw screwdrivers mm -hmm. and throw various knives and stuff. But if you could throw a screw, because you can keep a screwdriver in your car and nobody's going to get time. on to you about no, it. I got yeah. one in my car right now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I was willing to bet Mr. Jane has a lot more than a screwdriver in there. Yeah, you, how, how much do you think, how much practice do you think it would take to catch a bullet with your teeth? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I just, uh, I think what's going to happen is that the learning curve. It, <laughs> it depends on if it's coming out of a gun or not. I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you I know, guess maybe you throw it at me like it's popcorn. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe. either you do or you don't. <laughs> yeah, know, so like, yeah, you don't get a second chance. That's the I know. whole thing. That's a. It always reminds me of um, an old quote from uh, an interview they did with an explosive ordnance disposal guy uh, for one of our EOD guys, and they asked him, you know, how do you how do you remain calm under such pressure when you're diffusing IEDs and bombs? And uh, and he said that uh, he goes, either I'm right. Or suddenly it's not my problem anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I was like, so there's no pressure there, you know? Yeah, no. So, there's no, there's no wrong. You're yeah, just yeah. dead. <laughs> Don't second guess. Yeah, that's awesome. So one of the things too that um, I think is just, I've always really appreciated about uh, the way that you teach um, in your, in your uh, self-defense stuff, in your defensive tactics, like the classes that we've done, is I always come back with an understanding of, um, of, the application of maybe more traditional techniques, how they were supposed to be app uh, applied. Um, I've talked about before where we, you were mentioning, I think it was like, you know, karate chop to the neck. And like, obviously I'm not just going to start karate chopping everybody. <laughs> but if you replace that, act, that motion with a sword in your hand, now that suddenly becomes really, really deadly and useful. Mm -hmm. And when you're practicing those kind of motions, you're not practicing necessarily to block somebody's punch like this or, to karate chop somebody to death. Jesus, I just karate chopped this table. To death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you, you know, you, you're See, training. That's the greatest thing else. about martial artists is that they can't talk without like <laughs> yeah, we have you to, know, yeah. sound effects yeah. and visual. Effects. Yeah, try selling a store without moving your hands. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to happen. <laughs> but I've always appreciated that about the way that you you teach is you've I've always gained a, a deeper understanding of uh, the history of martial arts when I'm training with you. Well, I appreciate that. It, it, what has happened to is you look at in the commercialization when, when, you know, I think Taekwondo has really got a bum rap and it, it became a victim of its own commercial success in that in people's desire to earn a living or to make money or to capitalize on popularity, we started putting people out there that had no business teaching, mm -hmm. you know I mean? You know, we look at it in, in, in two and a half, two, you know, people were getting their black belts in two, two and a half years. And I'm like, okay, you, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you probably just got your blue belt. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? And so at, at 
And I, I tell my guys, and because and we, we follow the ethos of the style, and it's like, and it takes a lot longer than that to get a black belt in my gym, and even in Taekwondo. But at, in Taekwondo, you get a black belt, you're considered a serious student. Mm-hmm. In Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, when you get a black belt, you're considered a professor. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, it's like that 8, 10, 12-year journey. I mean, now... You know, the average person anywhere between eight and 12 years. I'm going to say, mm-hmm. you know, I know there's guys that have taken a lot longer. I know there's some people that have done a little bit faster. But, you know, the 10 years, a median yeah. kind of thing, you're so much deeper into the art. Well, you had in some of these traditional styles and the traditional stand-up styles, you had guys that really, they haven't been doing it long enough to really understand what the hell it is that they were doing. They don't have the same kind of perspective on their art, and then the further from the source, the muddier the stream. You know, you start losing those little things. And then I've always, I just went to a, uh, a shooting school. It was taught by a guy, it was SF, that had been over in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and was a serious shooter. Like, you know, this nothing that he taught was mm-hmm. theoretical and, and, uh, and, Talk about, you know, doing people in. Well, this guy for our government, you know, when the government absolutely positively needed somebody to disappear from the face of the earth, they sent him and his team. Right. Well, that's who I want to learn shooting from. So yeah. he's actually done it. Well, you got people out there that are training fighting and learning self-defense from people that have never, ever fought or defended themselves. Yeah. So <laughs> let me and, and I, I think it's awesome that you said that. So I kind of wanted to talk about that, I guess, since you brought it up. How important is it? And I again I know there's a, it's a double-edged sword, um, to say, well, um, you know, you can, you can know self-defense without having never been in a fight. However, um, in your opinion, if you're an instructor who's teaching self-defense, how important do you think it is for that instructor to, to at least have, if they haven't been in a fight or, but at least have competitive, uh, at least a lineage of competitive experience, um, of applying that information. I think the lineage is probably the most important important factor. So I've never shot anybody with my handgun or shot anybody with my AR, you know. <clears throat> but in my lineage of training, I've sought out guys to, through legal, through governmental means, you know what I mean, through the military or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely have. So, and I try to make sure that I'm updating my training in, in that. And yet, you know, I hope I'm never put in a situation where I have to shoot somebody with a gun. Sure, sure. As much the same could be saying for unarmed, you know, kind of combat is that at some point in your training experience, you know, it's, it's hard to say you know what's going to happen until you have stroked somebody and then you realize, wow, I just hit this guy as hard as I could mm-hmm. and nothing happened. I can remember the first time that happened to me in one of my kickboxing matches. First fight, I skip across the ring and I hit this guy as hard as I possibly could. And I really expected him to disappear in a cloud of red <laughs> yeah. mist and nothing happened. You know I mean? And, and at that point in time in my career, I thought that was pretty demoralizing because sure. I was like, sure. man, my coach said this would kill a man. And he don't look dead. <laughs> he don't look dead. And then I reframed over time to where, you know, my job wasn't to knock him out. My job was to continue to hit him as long as he was there. And so instead of losing confidence, when you hit somebody as hard as you can and nothing happens, especially when you first start, man, it's demoralizing. You know, I mean, it breaks your confidence. Now 
you know, you're, you're not, you're not fighting from a good place. So for me to contextually rephrase that, I was like, Oh, good. You're a tough guy. I'm here all day. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got like, all right, man, I've been training to whoop you for three rounds and I'm going to get all three rounds. And then I almost wanted to be disappointed when they laid down because that meant legally I had to quit beating on you. (laughs) So that was that's contextually rephrasing what your job is. Sure. But it kept you it, it, it kept. So now, I mean, you to hit somebody and they don't go away then. And when we're training and going back to why it's so important to have people that you tra- at least train under that have actually been there and done that have been in real live altercations, be it in the street, be it in the ring, um, whatever is to be able to add to, to give that kind of advice of like, look, there's some bad, tough people out there, man. I mean, I've seen guys with no training take serious amounts of punishment and they were still there. They mm-hmm. were, they were durable. I mean, you know, go to any of the amateur MMA fights and watch two guys that have little to no experience and they get in there and they've got, it. it's, I think the amateur MMA guys that have no fights or one fight, it's so much more raw because of the amount of adrenaline. Yeah. You know that that guy's got. I mean, you know, it's. Plus, I think the reason that they're there also when you look at that, because, you know, you've trained professional fighters, you've been around professional fighters for a long time, and we've got a couple of them at our gym as well. And um, when when you're an 0-0 guy on your first fight, you're there not to embarrass yourself in front of your girlfriend. And so your motivation to not quit and look like an idiot is stronger. And then when you get into the professional realms, now you're there because you're like, I'm going to do this for a job. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to my job now and now I'm going to act as a professional. But those first couple of MMA fights where you're there because you don't want your family to make fun of you when you get off the truck, when you Mm -hmm. get home, I think is a part of the reason they're so durable, you know, men- mentally wise, you know, and, and we've seen it the other way around too. I've seen a lot of guys get in there and go, holy fuck. I did <laughs> yeah. not know this was going to hurt this bad. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, and they quit immediately, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I remember having a guy come into the gym one time. He wanted, he wanted to, to box and, uh, we sparred with him. And afterwards he said, Mr. Danny, I thought boxing was all about hitting the other guy. But what I just learned, it's all about that other guy wanting to hit you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was a nice guy, you know, and, and I, he, he, but he had no idea, honestly, what it meant to stand in front of another yeah. person that wanted to do physical harm to mm-hmm. you, you know, that, that honestly. And the thing was, is that really we weren't trying to do that much harm. It was just another day in the gym of sparring. And he, he had no, he had, he had no, no concept. That's what becomes important. And I, it amazes me seeing people get taught and some of the stuff that I see that passes for self-defense um, can be almost, almost frightening, you know, mm-hmm. just because you're thinking, I'm, I'm like, wow, the guys I've hit, that's not going to work on, <laughs> you know, I don't know who you're training and playing with, but the guys we're playing with, they're, they're, they're not, they're not going to be impressed by that. So when you, when you think about women's self-defense and, and like de- um, developing skills, um, for like a women's self-defense class and stuff like that. Um, how important do you think it is? I guess, so I don't want to ask this question and cause it's, it's going to come, come across one way because it's easy to answer it this one way when we talk about jujitsu and women. Um, but do you think that there is just, do you think there's more value in 
having a woman go through a two day course where they're learning guard and triangles and arm locks and things like that. Things that have taken us years and years and years to get, uh, good at. And, um, or would you focus more on awareness, what we would call SA or situational awareness, you know, yeah. where, you know, not necessarily, you know, obviously they should have some hands on like, okay, this is how I at least get out from underneath somebody, but overall, um, developing the awareness of knowing how to identify things that just don't seem right in a situation. So here's how, cause I get asked a lot to teach these, you know, self-defense classes and Hey, we want you to come in and do a, a self-defense seminar. You know, we got this, this group, that group. You should and go I to ask, the one that he teaches in Brazil. It's considerably more intense than the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. It's a little different. Mr. Yeah. Dring tried yeah. to stab me. <laughs> Threw well, me you and tried stab to stab me. me. I was wondering where you got it I did stab you, yeah. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, ask, I'll, ask, I'll ask whoever's asking me to do that. I go, well, you know, because we want you to teach some techniques. I'm go, let me ask you a question. You ride a bike as a kid growing up? Yeah, yeah. Ride a bike a lot? Yeah. Would you bet me 10 grand on a bike race right now from here to Conway? Now. No. Well, did you swim as a kid? Yeah. Swim a lot. Oh, yeah. If I dropped you a mile from shore, do you think you could make it to shore? Oh, man, I don't know. And I go, well, if you wouldn't bet your life or bet your money on activities that you did for hours and hours and hours, what? why would you bet your life on two hours or an hour of training against somebody who's drunk on drugs, not wired right in the head, Murphy's mm -hmm. Law says it's going to be bigger and stronger. What makes you think that's going to work? Right. You know, so, and Chi. it's kind of like, Chi yeah, energy. man. <laughs> Chi energy. Yeah. yeah. So we, everybody wants the easy out. It's the bigger, better deal, you know, mm -hmm. and that's why people can sell, you know, everybody wants to think, man, I just learned, uh, I'm going to learn this magic technique and it's going to be, and there's so many factors, the psychological factor, having somebody that's drunk on drugs, not wired right in the head, wanting to do violence that absolutely mm -hmm. cares not about you, doesn't care about legal ramifications, doesn't care about having to go to court. Then, you know, a lot of times good people also view, well, you know, what are the ramifications and what happened? And, and predators don't have those same kind of concepts, precepts, right? And so, and, and it goes back, nature versus nurture. There's just some people that are wired, yeah. male or female. Man, they're wired for war. They're they're just they're, but they're not typically the ones that need the self defense right. class, right. you know. <laughs> you know, and so the ones that honestly need to learn. So when I go in, I feel like okay, giving you some awareness and avoidance mm -hmm. tools, you know, and in playing the the when then. I hate what if, you know, or if then. If implies it's never going to happen. Like, you know, if I win the lottery, then I'm going to go buy a Learjet. Well, you know, I've never been jet shopping. You know, <laughs> yeah. I've never uh, I just. But if I go, you know, when I'm at the gas station and a guy comes up to me trying to, you know, take money from me, then I'm going to do X, Y, Z. So when then is much more powerful thinking and giving giving people some avoid awareness and, and avoidance tools is something that you can do in an hour or two hours. You can talk about it. Now, whether or not they're going to actually practice or employ mm -hmm. those, you know, all you can do is kind of so those. And I can tell people, you know, we've talked about gouging eyes, right? And you can tell everybody and their dog, oh, yeah, you know, stick your thumb in the eye. 
But having the wherewithal, like if a guy that's SF that has been training to shoot guns and use knives and I mean, you know, that kind of is he has been trained can have a visceral reaction mm-hmm. to doing it. What do you think about, you know, your Aunt Betty that has never done anything to anybody at any time? And you can tell that lady, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then her having the speed, the timing, the confidence and the courage to do that without regularly training. And we all know, man, our jujitsu skills are perishable. Like, oh, absolutely. We're not going to, you're not going to forget the basics, but <clears throat> your sense of timing, your sense of, you know, unfortunately have gone through a, a ton of injuries. I can mm-hmm. list all these things I've done, but it's wrecked my body, you know, yeah. over the years. So I know what it's like to, to try to claw your way back onto the mat. And, and, uh, so, and every time it's like, oh man, you see stuff and you don't get quite to it. People, little things that you could do, you can't do. And that's just somebody that's been doing it forever. Can you imagine somebody that only had a day? Right. You know, it's, it's so difficult. I, and I, I, I'm, I work with the sheriff's department. I'm a reserve with Pulaski County. I've got something years <laughs> and a lot of years with the county in, and I've done defensive tactics. So I try to make sure that I'm staying on top of, relevant trends, things that are going on, um, updating and, and because everything evolves, right. And, and threats evolve. Crime evolves. Do what? Crime crime evolves. evolves. Crime evolves. Yeah. Everything, you know, so, um, ongoing training and we know more again, because big brother's watching, we know more about the actual kinds of attacks and how things, uh, how things occur. And so going out there and working with, and you know, they'll send oh here four hours. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do in four hours? You know, I mean, I I do some avoidance. I can teach some positional stuff. And it's uh, and everybody thinks you're going to learn some really crazy cool stuff. And I'm like, dude, in four hours, like, A, you're not taking guns away from people day in, day out. Mm -hmm. You're not doing knife disarms day in, day out. You're not, you know, but what you are doing is you're coming into contact with people. So I try to focus my training into what. What what are you actually going to do day in day out? Let me tell you what's going to help you out is maintaining distance, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. like is that's not a that's not like a major oh this is really cool martial artsy stuff. No, it's real. It's like if I keep enough distance and I'm really aware of how close you are to me at all times, I'm less likely to get sucker punched in the face. I'm less likely to get football tackled on the ground, mm-hmm. and I've got a better chance of getting to the tools that I wear around my waist. Mm-hmm. And that is so simple. And yeah. everybody's almost disappointed when I teach that because they think that I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm looking at them going, no. Most I mean, of us already know the answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like it's like when people say, like, they say it as a joke, like, you turn around and run away. It's like, yeah. Do that. Like yeah. you don't want to be in that fight. Turn around <laughs> yeah. and run away. Yeah, but it's not what they want to hear. Right. No, and you talk about distance, and and you're right. Um, when I was so my dad's retired law enforcement as well, and um, we we would refer to it as the six foot reactionary gap, mm-hmm. um, at least during you know his time as a defensive tactics guy, and then even in the in the combatives program, we we utilize an exercise of that very nature, where we um, we have we call projectile range uh, is one of the ranges that we we deal with with guns and knives and things like that. And we'll do an exercise where one person has a knife, one person has a gun, they start 10 feet apart. And the the person with the gun has to draw and shoot and the person with the knife has to stab. Well, as you get closer and closer and closer, that projectile item becomes completely useless. 
you know, within three feet, you're getting stabbed before you can ever pull your holster. Yeah. And so understanding that as well, because there's a lot of people that walk around that think, well, I've just got, I've got a yeah. gun. So that was originally done. It's called the Tooler rule, mm-hmm. which wasn't really, it's never official rule, but a guy named Tooler um, brought in. Now here, the funny part is, is that, uh, you know, another Bruce Lee reference, Dan Inosanto was the guy closing the gap, right? but they found 21 feet. So I was at a uh, plainclothes response to violent encounters class and they took, uh, had one of the Bob dummies mm-hmm. and then they had a Bob set up and then at 21 feet behind the line. So one person standing here with a knife, another guy, timer, beep, draw the gun, shoot. And, uh, notice how I shot over my, my mic. Yeah, yeah. Don't uh-huh. shoot into the mic. <laughs> you guys do hands. Thank you. They're kind of expensive. Yeah, they're $42. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, a piece. Everybody, it almost everybody made it and slashed the throat of the Bob before the gun went off. Really? Yeah. Within 21 feet. 21 feet. So That's it was amazing. a 20 foot. And, and, uh, there were a couple that got the, maybe got a shot off just as the guy was going there. Mm-hmm. But handguns are notoriously poor man stoppers. And unless you're really hitting like, you know, maybe severing the spinal cord, um, you're probably not stopping that guy's forward momentum. Yeah. And there's a really good chance unless you're getting off the X, moving and shooting, which a lot of people don't do when there's a threat coming at them. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really easy to say, oh, yeah, just move and shoot. You'd be surprised how few people actually move and shoot when they're mm-hmm. when they're firing um, would have still got stabbed. And I thought it was interesting. If you watch the old, yeah. there's some you can still find that original experiment. Well, Inosanto was a uh, was a sprinter, and uh, he he ran for I don't know SoCal or or uh, maybe it was UCLA. He was a but he was a sprinter, like and, and had a crazy like <laughs> crazy hundred yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like he was ruining these guys. In addition <laughs> to being a crazy good knife guy. Um, he was crazy fast, you know, I mean, really, really ignorantly quick. So, but that, that's where that, a lot of that came from mm-hmm. and, and they still, they still work on that. So when you're talking reactionary gap that and guns and knives, you know, there's a lot of really interesting studies that are out there and you can look up that on YouTube and see all kinds of people doing it with airsoft. Mm-hmm. And how often are people like pulling out a knife at 20, 21 feet away though? Like if I'm going to pull out my knife, it's going to be at three feet away where I can use right. it. Right. And know? that's, and, and you're, you're not wrong about that. And, and Mr. Dream, we mentioned it earlier. We talked about CCT, like the, the, the closed circuit television gives us that. And the reality is, I see is a that, couple of situations. Yeah. There's a, I'm there's out of my car, a large maybe. amount of uh, situations where, You've got guys running around crowds with not, you know, like it, it's not as common, obviously, but, um, but yeah, but I, I think it, it's, it's more of a, a point to reference or a proof to reference that, um, it, it takes a couple of seconds. If you were to tell someone, okay, draw, it takes seconds for that to go here to here to here, and then still acquiring a target site picture and, mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. Um, whereas with, you know, we've grown up our entire lives slinging our hands around, and all we're doing is putting something in it and slinging it around. Mm-hmm. I've been playing a lot of Call of Duty lately, mm-hmm. so I feel like my reaction speed is just on point. Right wow. now. it is weird that you and I have the exact same amount of combat tours, and you're not <laughs> yeah. in the military. <laughs> I've been yeah. the same amount of hours. Yeah. War happens whenever you just run around in a circle and shoot everybody on the map, right? Yep, that's exactly what it looks like. And then there's a time limit in every single battle zone. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, time's up, guys. Let's get yeah. bring it back in. <laughs> um, and. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting, and you mentioned um, 
you know, man stoppers and using, using guns as man stoppers stuff like that. Um, even us, when we qualify on our weapons for the longest time, we would do the, uh, uh, two to the chest, one to the head. And they've actually started kind of getting away from that. Um, and when we're doing the combatives piece now, we're actually, uh, teaching to shoot to the hip girdle, uh, where you basically, the idea is that you're not trying, you're not going to kill them. Most likely you're not, we carry NATO nine millimeters. So we're not probably going to kill anyone with that off of an initial shot. But if we can shatter the, the pelvic girdle and drop them, mm-hmm. it, that's the idea is to neutralize the threat, not necessarily yeah. dispatch the threat. And even you're not wearing a plate carrier over your right. groin. Mm. And uh, even if there is uh, any kind of material there, uh, Kevlar bib, mm-hmm. so to speak, a cup. you're being punched in that lower viscera. It's mm-hmm. going to hurt. Yes. You know, it's going to start breaking you. Uh, it's going to start breaking you down. Mm hmm. Yeah. So we had, we had researched a, uh, a martial art called 52 blocks that, Mm -hmm. uh, had been developed in, uh, prison system. Yeah. The prison systems. The next time Mitch is going to get up and walk all the way over here and grab his drink, (laughs) drink it and then come back and put it down. Um, but we, we found it really, really interesting because most of the moves that they focused on were things like, um, isolating limbs, like stabbing the arm, like making sure that they weren't going to be able to stab you because in reality, if I were going to kill somebody with a shank that I had in a prison cell, it's probably going to take me a while and I don't have a while. Mm-hmm. I've got to make sure that you can't stab me and kill me and I'm going to try and bleed you out, you know, like, um, and so a lot of the attacks were like to the armpit or, um, was it, there were some to the legs and mm-hmm. stuff like that. A lot to the groin, um, a lot of moves to protect the groin and stuff like that. I found it really interesting. I was watching one night late at night. And it was prison video and it was of guys actually getting stabbed in prison Mm -hmm. and there was no warning. You know, a guy will walk up and he's got it hidden behind his leg and then ice pick, stab him. And you're just coming up like this Mm -hmm. in a 45 degree angle of insertion up underneath the rib cage, Mm -hmm. looking to puncture the aorta and you're boom. I mean, dropping And every single one of them were violent and they were very, very fast and it was one of those things that you start looking at and, you know, everybody's got their nifty, you know, knife defenses. And yet, yeah. man, when you start looking at that and just, you know, the the violent reality and it's the unexpectedness, you know, it's not like there's a referee going, are you ready? Right. Are you ready? You know, you know, it, it's not like that. And even when you go into knife training, you know what you're there to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. Can you be visiting with somebody, turn around, and then go from zero to 100? You know, that's the that's the hard part. None of us, <clears throat> that's the hardest part about actually being able to employ anything that you do is that it is very difficult unless you've got Cato hiding in your closet right. that's going to arbitrarily jump out at you when you go home. Um, going from zero to 100 without any chance of warming up, without having any idea, because that's typically what happens. And you can divide all self-defense scenarios into one of two types. It's either going to be a spontaneous attack or a confrontation. Spontaneous attack would be, you know, like what I'm talking about, obviously. It means you but, need to practice how you treat people yeah. and they won't spontaneously attack you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you open, you're, you, you open up your door and somebody's inside your home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny because working with law enforcement, you know, the number one thing people do when they find somebody come out of their bedroom and there's somebody in their living room or they walk in, you know, park their car and they come in their house and there's somebody there. 
the number one thing people do is freeze. No, they engage them in conversation. What are you doing here? Oh, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, they're doing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you really don't. That's not a time. To How are you doing? To, yeah. <laughs> you need a glass of water? <laughs> it's not time to uh, talk. The confrontation is what's more difficult. Statistically, that's what happens more. Mm. More likely you're going to be in some sort of a confrontation and being able to recognize pre-attack indicators, yeah. you know, is really huge. That's where maintaining your reactionary gap but then you have the the normal person is probably not looking to engage, mm-hmm. whereas the other person may be looking to engage. And you start running into, you know, those society norms that we were talking about earlier. And so and then even then, I mean, the confrontation gives you a clue, but then it happens really, really fast. So that, that changes up. I mean, you know, how how you you respond to your training. One of our. uh uh, one of the camps that I ran not too long ago on the last, second day, I told everybody just show up in their street clothes. Wear what you normally wear. You know, it's different if you've always worn your pajamas. Yeah. You know, well, you're that's always, exactly what Johnny wears every day. That's, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, you know, you got your uh, it, it, put on your boots, put on your shoes, wear your wear your jeans, wear what you normally wear. And all of a sudden your rolling feels different. Your mm-hmm. punching feels different. Your kicking feels different. And it has a, a has a big difference, and it all martial arts evolved because of their environment. You know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, one on one competition on the mat, it's without it's without peer. Mm-hmm. Um, you do that same one on one competition in gravel on right. uneven terrain, yeah. and it may not be you know on a rocky hillside. You know, jumping guard may not be what you want to do. Right. You know, I mean, there's there's environments, but environments on the beach, dictate. You can. Yeah. yeah, in the beach, if you're in Brazil, it's beautiful. Um, you know, the Ozark Mountains, maybe not so much. <laughs> uh, and and it's the same thing. I mean, you know, kicking. If you're in a rice field, up to water up to your waist, you're not good doing a lot of kicking. Mm-hmm. But that hourglass stance from a Wing Chun thing may be more about like what you want to do. And so, wearing a lot of heavy clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're in in a cold weather environment, uh, mountains in Japan, and you're wearing a lot of clothes, punching and kicking. I mean, it's hard to punch when you've got lots of lots of clothes on. You grab somebody, and that's where your judo all right. of a sudden, yeah, you right. know, that throw right there becomes you know hyper hyper effective. Uh, it's like you know in the jungles of Malaysia, you know, the slot styles with some of their funky stances. You look at that, and you're like, well. Man, if you're on a on a jungle trail and there's vines everywhere, how you move in that environment is going to be different than how you're going to move when you're on the beach. I'd heard, um, and I don't know how true this is, but I'd heard that Savat, uh, the, the martial arts Savat, was developed for fighting on a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, that a lot of it was uh, like you were holding onto a handrail as you kick somebody in the head because the boat's rocking back and forth. You know if that's if there's any. The, I think there is that? because. For some reason, because it was a French martial art, and I believe it yeah. was like a French Foreign Legion like, thing. It, I want to say it came from their navy. It makes sense yeah. for some reason. Yeah, I, 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 man, not gonna come. You know, if I yeah. can't verify, I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah. when I say something, but that is that rings bells. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's so really interesting how yeah. I was discussing this the other day at the gym. Like uh, Lethway, have you ever seen oh, Lethway? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's basically Muay Thai with headbutts. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered, like, if you were to isolate a lot of these martial arts, like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if we just left it alone for longer, what would it turn into? Mm-hmm. If we just isolated Lethway and uh, and just let that evolve, 
without any outside influence. So here's what what's happens. interesting about Lethway is that uh, Dr. Manji, um, Dr. G had the first kickboxing school in America. Uh-huh. Um, and he was a bando, Burmese, Lethway, uh, Burmese boxer. And so he was the, uh, he was pretty much the mentor for the Joe Lewis fighting systems. He was in, uh, Joe fought in Madison Square Garden. And Dr. G, I think, was like you know, fought on the undercard at the age of about 45. I mean, he was in his <laughs> yeah. late 40s and he was still, you know, competing in the uh, competing in the ring. And that uh, so the first kickboxing school technically was a left way. You know, school. yeah, it was a Burmese boxing uh, was a Burmese boxing school, which I think, you know, trivia for 10. Um, and Dr. G's like, you know, we would had us doing focus mint work with our headbutts. You know, it was we've up. done some of that. I've boom, done some of that with boom, you. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that came from that came from the left. OK. Line. And so that's where that 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 came from. And then the dropping knees and, you know, doing the takedowns and then dropping on knees, dropping elbows, yeah. doing the headbutt work. And that's all that all came from uh, from uh, Dr. G. So it was really interesting training with him because that was. It, it, the Burmese boxing and the left way makes Muay Thai look really civilized. Right. You know, I mean, and, and Thai boxing is downright violent. You know, mm-hmm. I, I got to go to uh, Rajadamnern Stadium when I was in Bangkok and watch uh, watch some Thai fights, man. They were carrying boys. I mean, it was incredible. They, you know, they had the band playing. Mm-hmm. It was really cool for me personally to uh, get to be there and watch the uh, watch the fights. And uh, but man, they were dropping. I mean, they were dropping fools. You know, it was great in the early part of your career. Um, so, what year did you start getting serious about martial arts? Like, what what around what time was that? Seventy nine. Seventy nine. So in the in the seventies and eighties, what was the stupidest shit you ever saw? Like seminar wise, like some guys coming through the network saying, "Hey, you guys need to come come out here and check out this." This thing I'm doing, you know, what I mean, because I can imagine you were going to a lot of seminars, a lot of yeah. reaching out, traveling for a lot of education and stuff. But like, what was some of the I dumbest can, shit? Well, I don't know. Like, dumb I, stuff. Know I, I zoned to, out yeah. for a second and came back just <laughs> yeah. on that. What was some dumb shit? <laughs> shit. Let's break it down. Um, uh, there was a lot of crazy stuff in the the AOK. So well, I graduated from uh, North Rock Northeast and I went down to uh, Baylor. I went to start my college career Waco Texas and while I was down there I trained a little bit in Shotokan mm-hmm. and can uh and went fighting on the AOK circuit well uh the, some of the old school martial art guys Demetrius Savannah, Ray McCallum saw Ray McCallum showed up and and at this time like uniforms were optional okay I, you know I, like I mean in it. it was bare knuckle groin kicks were legal if you hit the ground you still had three you know you could follow up so if you swept somebody they went to the ground you could punch them if y'all both fell to the ground you could punch and kick each other um uh, the groin kicks i saw people get kicked you know cups broken out from underneath people you'd go backstage and Somebody's there with their man business on a bag of ice, really not loving life. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that was, was pretty interesting. I saw Ray McCallum was talking to the crowd. I think it was in Colleen, Texas. And he'd shown up with a bunch of his boys on motorcycles and came in. And he's talking like I'm talking to you guys, whipping this dude. And uh, this guy threw a sidekick and he rolled into the dude's base leg and backfisted him in the groin what? while he's having a conversation. And I was oh, wow. like, 
Dude, that was sick. Yeah. You know what I mean? That is like, you're not even, you're not even in the house. same neighborhood <laughs> yeah. in terms of skill level. You know, I mean, he was he was so far ahead. And that's what you would see in some of those old school tournaments is that you'd have guys that were recreational. Yeah. You know, I mean, they trained, you know, a couple of times a week and had earned a black belt. And then there were these guys that were traveling the country that were just straight up killers. Mm-hmm. And they would go through and pull you know, highlight reel stuff. And this is before you could have a highlight reel, (laughs) you know, would pull off some crazy, uh, crazy stuff. And the old school challenges, we had, you know, people from various styles would come in. Dojo rating was something totally different back then. Yeah. You know, you'd have guys, you know, come in and, from this style, pretending to be cops. Yeah. That was what happened in the Count Dante Dojo Wars is, they, first of all, they used dynamite on somebody's dojo. Like they, t- they got caught taping dynamite to their dojo. I'm like, you're telling me you're the deadliest man on the fucking planet, and you just went and strapped dynamite to their, to their <laughs> building, you know? And then they had to pretend to be cops <laughs> yeah, to they, bust in on them. One of the dojo storms they did, they showed up pretending to be cops. And then just started beating everybody up. Was, <laughs> like, if you really think that you're the deadliest man on the planet, you just walk in and yeah. be yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> everyone that's should crazy. die around you. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's some of the greatest people I've ever met. Honestly, I mean, really, really good human beings been through the martial arts, and some of the craziest people <laughs> yeah. I've ever met. Well, Dan, right, been through the uh, martial arts, and it's just one of those things that people. It, just the nature of the beast is that this is. A, a section that that draws a lunatic fringe. So, I, and I'll, I'll mention him by name because I do have a lot of respect for this guy. So I'm not saying anything bad about him. But you mentioned Gokor Chavikian, uh, Gokor uh, Chavikian earlier, uh, and Max Bishop being one of the local guys. You know, I'll say it out loud. That guy was one of the craziest motherfuckers I ever met in my life. He tried to fight me one time, <laughs> and I was a purple belt in jujitsu, 23 years old, and I didn't even know why I made him mad, but. I, I say that with respect because <laughs> I do. Yeah. It I sounds like that. it. Because he's still out there. Because he's still out yeah. there. And he's, I'm, I still Pretty sure him, he doesn't you know? listen to the podcast. You know, and that he, he doesn't. He's still training mules up in, in North Arkansas somewhere. But um, but the reality is, is, you know, business aside and all that, but just martial arts in general, the guy was a plethora of knowledge and he was a little crazy. Like, I'm mm-hmm. okay, I will say that, you know, and you guys don't have to say it and that's fine. Um <laughs> But I think that was what was kind of appealing about him was that he he had that appeal. And so when when he would teach martial arts to people, there's a small group of people that are looking for that exact type of person. Mm-hmm. And he was able to provide it, you know. I love Max. And for all the reasons you just mentioned. Yes. And he, uh, when I put on my first show, it was populated um, by a lot of his guys mm-hmm. because he was one of the few people that could train an MMA yeah. fighter. Um, and do and, well. And yeah, back in the early days, you know, especially. And then, uh, and, and he spent time with uh, Gokar and Gene LaBelle. Mm-hmm. Um, had Henzo in. I mean, yeah, he was a hoist black and, belt as well. Yeah. Anytime I see uh, Henzo, he'll, he asked me about, you know, if I've seen Max. Cause, yeah. Um, and then uh, Jeff Mullins mm-hmm. out of uh, out of Memphis. Now, Jeff's a athletic commissioner now in Nevada. And, uh, Jeff brought in more high-level grapplers into the Memphis area to do seminars before anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I went to a lot of seminars at 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 uh, at Jeff's school. I actually went to a lot of seminars at Max's school. Yeah, you know, because 
those guys were bringing people in. I mean, you know, they were actually, you know, bringing grapplers in. They were bringing guys in. They were doing the seminars. They were putting their guys into the ring. And so really in the Mid-South, I mean, you know, Jeff, uh, Max, myself, there were only a few of us that were like actually, Mm -hmm. you know, training fighters and, and, uh, and putting guys in the, uh, putting guys in a ring or in a cage. I mean, a lot of my early shows, it was more like pride and that we were fighting in a ring, you know, before I had a cage, you know, and, uh, we had, uh, and I know Max was putting on those smokers also, you know, basically I'd hear stories. I don't know how true they are, but I'd, I'd hear stories about, you know, up in Paragol and stuff, these, putting on these shows and, and two guys are supposed to fight. One guy doesn't show up. So they're like, Hey, anybody in the crowd want to oh, jump yeah, up here? I mean, and get uh, hey, dude, that wasn't just that. Max. That was all yeah. across the state. Yeah. That was how I got my first fight. That's crazy. <laughs> that's so I, crazy. Yeah, I almost fought twice in the same day. It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. There's a, there were a lot. I mean, like I, I came in at the tail end of probably all the craziness, all the, uh, unorganized and you know and there was it was getting organized organized and there was still like another side of it where we were fighting in rodeos and mm-hmm. i was i remember one guy his fight got canceled so he went and drank and then they called him like hey you got a fight so he's like all right i'll be there yeah. <laughs> came back in and fought uh, yeah um crazy crazy stuff like that would happen all the time and it still does a little bit but it's gotten much much more professional well and it's had area. to and that's why it 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 came up underneath the athletic commission and got to the point. Like I used to be able to do shows and, uh, and one of the guys, I, I mean, I, I charge an entry fee. I mean, mm-hmm. people pay a hundred dollars to go do a jujitsu tournament. Yep. You know, they'll pay, they'll pay to go to a karate tournament. Well, I'm like, I'm putting on these small shows and, uh, at the Sherwood forest or, you know, various venues. I mean, I'm, I, the armory, that's the armory. Yeah, yep. fought in the armory. Knocked out cold. In did the you know? I, I put shows on at the Statehouse Convention Center, Hot Springs Convention Center. We did some larger shows in conjunction with some other things, but um, and Metroplex put on the first sanctioned professional show in, at the Metroplex. So I mean, use different venues, but a lot. My most favorite ones were out of the Woody Sherwood Forest, and and I mean, train fighters. Pair the fighters. My dad had worked the door. My mom had worked the concession stand. Awesome. We would charge, you know, we were charging like $50 to, to the, the, to the guys that were fighting so that, you know, I could pay somebody to put the cage and put mm-hmm. the ring up. And, uh, I didn't have to have, I mean, it was really almost, it was, I'm not going to say underground, but it, it was it, cause we were doing, this was before the unified rules even right, came yeah, into so there existence. Wasn't a lot of bureaucracy so and yeah, man, involvement. we did three rounds. Uh, we were doing three threes. We had uh, uh, I, I was doing, and this is before the main fights were. You know, UFC wasn't even doing rounds yet. Mm-hmm. So we would do three three minute rounds, and 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 it was very much at the very beginning. Well. I mean, you can't do a small show like that anymore. No, no. Yeah. You know, I mean, just because of all the regulation, it's yeah. either go big or go home. So if you're not out there and you're not hustling sponsorships and selling tables and promoting and everything, but it takes away a little bit from some of the amateurness. I mean, you're asking guys to go out. I mean, it makes it a little bit tougher because MMA guys don't get to get the same amount of experience before they before they turn professional that say boxers do yeah you know i mean that's uh that's tough i think a lot of the amateur fighters too now 
because of social media, because of things like Instagram and all of that, they want to be treat, treated like they're professional fighters. They mm -hmm. want to be on that card. Like yeah. they won't fight on a card that's in a rodeo in the middle of Arkansas that's, um, you know, on a dirt floor or whatever. But it's like in actuality, as an amateur, you kind of need that. Yeah, you need to go Peter, through. And it becomes the Peter principle in action because they're not greened. Right. So they rise their level of incompetency really, really fast. Right. Yeah. You know, sense, yeah. I mean, you can have a lot of and I think it, it detracts. It detracts ultimately how good guys can get. So because you're not you don't get the opportunity to get that experience. You don't get. The, that those fight camps over and over and over mm -hmm. again. And you got people running up. I had something, I had a, uh, uh, a guy I was trying to get a fight for. He's a blue belt and a lot of O and O one and O O and one, you know, fighters wouldn't fight him because he was a blue belt. And I'm like, wild. you have got to be kidding me. I mean, I, I was actually shocked. You know, he had a couple of fights fall through and he, he's a hard, Hard weight to find a fight for, lighter lighter weight guy. But they were like, "Oh no, he's a blue belt." And I'm like, "Man, that's uh, that's nuts." I, I I thought it was especially in this day and age, you know, with as much jujitsu yeah, everywhere at, at, that there is, mm -hmm. is that the guys that are right now still doing MMA didn't want to fight because he'd had some official training, right? And I'm like, "Man, that does not bode well for the future of the sport." Yeah, right. you know, I mean, I I was kind of a little bit uh, a little bit disturbed by that. Do you see do you see a trend happening in jiu-jitsu or in or in fighting MMA jiu-jitsu whatever boxing um I mean since I I've noticed since my time that there'll be trends on how the techniques that are used the styles that are used and they kind of go in this circular path where like you know uh jiu-jitsu comes around and then uh people start realizing that high level wrestling can start to shut down jiu-jitsu then people start realizing well if I have a little bit of wrestling with really good boxing I don't have to worry about the jiu-jitsu at all then the kickboxing comes in and then the jiu-jitsu kind of comes back around because they're like, well, if I have good wrestling, then I can take them down and then use my jiu-jitsu. So you see this big circle. Mm. Do you notice anything like well, that happening now? Yeah. What's interesting, you know, being involved with the athletic come because I'm the co-chair of the Arkansas Athletic Commission. And I, I want to state publicly for the record, I <laughs> absolutely hate being on the commission, <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody is happy that you're an athletic commissioner, right. you know, I don't think and nobody's I mean, happy to be on the athletic commission. Oh, no, it's, like it. it's so it, it's, it's a time vampire. I mean, it just latches to your neck and it sucks the life out of your day. Um, but it has to be done. And, and I feel like somebody that actually knows something, it's, it's amazing how many people can be involved at that level that have never, ever been punched in the face right yeah and, you know they don't they wouldn't know you know an, an arm bar or a or a or a heel hook from from a right hook you know i mean they they have no they have no idea about what's going on and having a love i mean i've i had a usa amateur boxing club inside my gym you know my oldest boy was a state golden gloves and mid, uh state golden gloves and mid-south golden gloves boxing I've worked with professional boxers mma fighters blah 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 so having a passion for the fighting arts, I think is important. And then having the fighter's best interest at heart and having a fighter's heart uh, is important to have some, at least somebody like that on the commission, but then you get involved in so many things. It just is like, uh, anyway, the reason why I bring that up is I get, I, I travel, I get to see a lot of between, you know, cornering people, being around, watching the fight game. And it comes down, I think, Nowadays, it's the consummate game of rock, paper, scissors. 
um, with the difference, but you, you've seen over the years, obviously, boxing, Thai boxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu. You get a few guys that were traditionalists that, I mean, were, I mean, they're just athletic dudes. You know, they're going to be good at whatever they did. You know, mm -hmm. I tell people a lot of time, it's not the song, it's the singer. Mm -hmm. You know, it wouldn't matter what song I sing, it's going to suck. Right. My ass can't sing. <laughs> yeah. I can't carry a tune in the wheelbarrow. So it, it's to a certain extent, you know, you get somebody that's got great timings, athletic, that is, I mean, it doesn't matter what their core art is. But when they start cross-training, to be able to do MMA is nobody's coming in from just one perspective anymore. They may be wrestling and boxing. They may be, you know, uh, jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai. They could be jiu-jitsu and boxing. But there's going to be some cross-training. What really sets the wrestlers apart and why wrestling has come back into vogue is that they come from a disciplined athletic program. Mm -hmm. You know, if <clears throat> by the time, if you... And I'm not talking about high school wrestlers. I'm talking about guys who make it into college. Sure. Let's talk about the higher level guys. Is that if you came out of a D1 athletic program, what did you have? You had you had to be there at this time because you're probably mm -hmm. on scholarship yep. if you're a D1. You're on scholarship. So you're, you're going to show up. When they say you're going to be at the track at 6 a.m., your ass was at the track at 6 a.m., when you had a nutritionist because you got to make a weight division, you got people that are also in college that their degree is in nutrition. And mm -hmm. so they're helping you out with your diet. You know, when you went to the weight room, it wasn't, you know, your buddy Bob who read, you know, Pumping Iron magazine. You <laughs> had a guy whose degree was in sports science mm -hmm. who was building your who was building your your weight training program. So people that came that came out or come out of the D1 college athletic program that were really serious, man, they are athletically so far above the curve. Yeah. You know, if you had a D1 jiu-jitsu program, our jiu-jitsu would be a different level. Oh, yeah. What's you his know? name is trying that? Ricardo Labor Laborio? Mm. He's trying yeah. to do that in the colleges start. Introducing yeah. a college program. Yeah. It's, and then other countries are, are putting that into practice. But I know where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, uh, ex using it as an example. Like if we had a program structured like a D1 school, but for jujitsu or even for, well, I say boxing, boxing is, but boxing, we've got, you know, the academy has boxing. West Point has boxing. You can get it at the collegiate level. Um, one thing I found interesting about uh, the Air Force Academy itself, especially because that's the only experience I have with those types of colleges, is you could you could box for the academy, but you could have no more than two amateur fights in your life to mm -hmm. box for the academy. Uh, you couldn't go there on scholarship because it to them it was an athletic. It was something you could do as an athletic for like a freshman credit. Mm -hmm. um, but they had D1 wrestling and you could go there as a wrestling scholarship with tons of experience, with tons of experience. Yeah. But their boxing program was like kind of a, a satellite program that they used just as a freshman credit. Right. It was the weirdest thing, you know? Um, and I believe me, I saw some really shitty boxers. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're not wanting somebody that's really, really good mm -hmm. to come in and wreck people. You their know, their boxing is different. They have to train to box inside of an airplane. So yeah. <laughs> they use shorter arms. Well, I can tell you one thing, uh, when you're tra when you're training at anything at the air force Academy, uh, I, I got to see the uh, altitude altitude. It is yes. no way you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to see the Air Force Army boxing uh, when they had the uh, the Air Force Army game this past year. And there's a sign um, on there that says, welcome to 7,250 feet. 
you know, and that's a reminder to West Point and those other guys that like, it, it's a big deal that, you know, so even yeah. if you're, you know, when that airs that thin, it is, man, it's a big really, deal. I went to, uh, I went to executive security international was in Aspen, Colorado. I did their home study thing, spent three weeks in Aspen learning to be a bodyguard. And, uh, we drove the Dallenbach family, did the race car driving. We, you know, how to drive convoys and how to get mm-hmm. out of ambushes and stuff. How and much is this camp and where do I sign up? Yeah. It's a it, great program. Yeah. I, I would love that. That'd yeah. be, I'd change we to be shot, John Farnham was the shooting instructor. So we were shooting in excess of a thousand rounds a day. Yeah. I mean, you're spending about 15 hours a day on the range just from early morning until at night. Cause so you could get your low light night shooting in and we did, uh, the the most important stuff was was not any of the fun stuff like the fun mm-hmm. stuff is but it was all the stuff uh, an ex secret service agent guy who protected several presidents his name was Jack McGeorge was the uh, one of the primary uh, classroom instructors and he's like if you ever have to use anything that you learn that's fun you suck as a bodyguard. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's <laughs> you true. Know? Yeah, like, you screwed up. <laughs> yeah, and then he proceeded to show slide after slide after slide where, look, because these guys didn't do their advanced work and didn't do their other stuff right. You know, uh, they all the slides where the bodyguards died was yeah. like really, really important part of that uh, class. How well do you think a, a class like that would do as like a recreational class? You could like, like they do the escape rooms. You could like sign well, up to do so a bodyguard there's, class. There's a guy named Jason Hansen. That's an ex CIA spy. Uh-huh. Uh, and he does a camp like that. Like, and it's interesting because his marketing, some of his marketing is just cheesy as hell, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you read it and it's like, okay, you're going after the Walter Mitty crowd. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? This this group that you're going after. But his content is really off the chain. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, his the content of what he's selling, like I think his marketing is really bogus. But his product, I mean, the information that he's putting out on cybersecurity mm-hmm. and protecting your your bank account information yep. and, you know, being able to, uh, you know, and traveling if somebody's trying to pick you up as a target and a lot of the situational awareness stuff mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier, his education on that stuff is is fantastic. I've got yeah. three or four of his books. I, I, I've got his stuff coming into my inbox. It's just the and delivery. Yeah, I mean, the marketing. It's just yeah. the marketing of it. But he does have like a spy camp where they teach you how to get out of, like if somebody's wrapped you up in duct tape, mm-hmm. how to break that or how to get out of That'd uh, be an awesome like Valentine's Day idea. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, yeah. go figure out, go learn how to get out of zip I mean, ties. And he's proud of it too. Like, it, it's like a $10,000 mm-hmm. camp that you're going to and they teach... They teach, you know, evasive car maneuvers and the driving and, and all of that. You, you, know? you talking about the cheesy marketing may, reminds me of I recently ra- waged war against a certain Taekwondo association that I want. I noticed that. I noticed uh, that on your Instagram. If you want to find out, you can follow me on Instagram. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> follow all the drama there. But it, so it got me started. Like I started just Googling like random Taekwondo schools throughout the nation just to like because I wanted to go through their Google reviews. I didn't find... For this particular association, I didn't find a single one that didn't have one-star reviews. And one of them <laughs> cracked me up because these people were like, yeah, we signed up for like six months and then the instructor just disappeared. Oh, we wow. never saw him again. <laughs> like we were in class that day and he just didn't show up. Nobody knows where he, or they, we haven't heard from him. School's still there. Nobody goes there anymore. Dude, that's so wild. It's just like so many weird things like that. There's another one that happened in Little Rock um, of a guy that apparently had a room specifically dedicated to paddling children 
And then oh, uh, we take yeah. him in and paddle. Yeah. <laughs> Alarms go off to me there, though, because, like, what what do you do? You dropping your kids off and just, like, okay, bye. You know? And, like, no parents are in there watching this person take a child into another room and, like, choose a paddle. Well, the thing is, is they okay with that? It's They may not be okay with it, but I think the large majority of the people who are staying and seeing it don't want to say anything you know they they're, it's so weird you know it's one of those well, things and where if you're set up to take care of disadvantaged youth who's maybe their parents aren't coming in mm-hmm. you know that uh and i'm unfortunately well aware of the school and the person you're talking I, about i probably figured you and did, it, yeah. it's you know i mean it's just horribly sad yeah i mean i and stuff like that gives everybody in the martial arts a, ba- a black eye because Unfortunately, to the uninitiated, we all get lumped in. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we all kind of get lumped in with that. And and then uh, I, I you hear stuff like that and you're just like, how does that exist? Yeah. You know, I don't I don't get it. You know, I mean, I, I really I really don't. It's just like I, I in in being older, you know, I know it's a little harder for me to be lean and panther like, mm-hmm. you know, age, injury comes in. I still have a passion and. And uh, want to share knowledge and, and share experience. And, uh, you know, Father Time is undefeated. Yeah, he really <laughs> you know is. I mean, you know, You're not it, wrong. Just, it, it just it just is. But yet, you know, I mean, I still do my push ups and pull ups. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'm out there on the mat. I can't do everything, but I'm I'm trying to do what I can't. And, I see these guys that look like you don't have the discipline to push your ass away from the table. Mm-hmm. Right. How how are you purporting to teach any kind of any kind of discipline at all when you can't take care of yourself? All ASICs, ASIC geese and black belts, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, um, uh, the uh, speaking I, of, I've said about, about that uh, that particular story. Um, one of my coaches made a comment one time. I uh, somebody. Wait, uh, wait, wait. We never told the story about uh, your other your other coach. Did that, ever, did that ever flesh out? So, Can we tell that story? So I don't know because I don't know all the details and I don't want to be the one Well, let's to, make some up. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I do know is that he supposedly is training in Shreveport right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. so he's actually training at someone else's gym. All right, uh, so maybe maybe it cleared so, up and maybe I don't know that it I don't cleared up. bring it up and, uh, you know, we'd be oh, completely and wrong. I know the story of what you speak to. Yeah, right? yeah, probably. Yeah, I did, unfortunately. Um, I was yeah, excited he, to so I don't know. share that drama. Um, I'm happy for the guys who are still remaining at the gym, who are keeping it going. They're doing a good job. And I've heard that they've done some really good job at changing the culture in that gym. Um, you know, and if the story's true, then, you know, excuse my language, but fuck the guy. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, but going back to that ATA, th- or, oops, I was to say that. We can, <laughs> we, I'll say it is ATA. Yeah. <laughs> you guys can come after me. <laughs> so, um, speaking of that story though, uh, one of my coaches made a joke one time that said, uh, one of our new slogans was uh, for the gym was going to be "Come train with us." We haven't been sued <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah the, I think that the bottom line is like people just need to be again situational awareness. Like, be aware of what you're putting your children into. Well, dude, there's in an Cabot, instance they where, had. Go ahead. I'm sorry. There's an instance where um, in Centerton, uh, the police had after uh, uh, like there was a rape case or something that happened to a child. It was horrible. But then afterwards they posted something that was basically blaming the victim. Mm. Like, Hey, maybe you should think about not leaving your child with a, a, a male unattended that you don't know. Yeah. Like maybe you should think about making that post a little bit separated from sure. the charge. No, you're, you're absolutely like, right. Yeah. You're right. But don't yeah. attach it to this. You start. can't, 
there's a fine line between personal responsibility and then teetering on the on the verge of victim blaming. You know? Yeah, right. And, and I'm so not trying. That's not no, what I'm trying I, to I, do. I get but, it. You know, and but and I think I may have told this story on the podcast before. I don't know. Johnny will let me know. Um, <laughs> Because he makes sure to remind we'll every list time. Of them. <laughs> um, but when uh, in Cabot, we had a situation happen with a, a martial arts school there where one of the instructors was doing uh, very illegal things with children. Right. Uh, and they had proven it to be the case and everything like that. Um, and I used to own a gym in Cabot. And at the time, so I went into my unit. I wasn't at work that day, but my squadron commander uh, came into the office one day. And, and while I wasn't there. And was like, hey, did you guys hear about that whole thing that went down in Cabot at that martial arts school? And uh, a couple of guys were like, no, we don't, you know. And he goes, that wasn't Mitch, was it? And I was like, what do you mean it wasn't? Was it me? <laughs> what kind of thing you think I'm doing around here? But no, it wasn't me. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> just to clear my just name. Just so we're clear. It wasn't like, me. Yeah, don't worry about me. it. Don't talk uh, about it. I don't want to talk about it. It's not a big deal. It wasn't me. But you know what I mean? That's almost a sign of the times. It doesn't matter if you're a cop, a clergy. Yeah. Right. Oh, man. Yeah, the, right. the whole Catholic Church mm-hmm. and other elements of the clergy, politicians. I mean, there's I think the, no segment of the population that is that is immune from having, you know, right. assholes like right. the to to do something like that to a child. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just like, ah, man. And yet it's it happens. You mm-hmm. know, what I mean, and it's horrible. Uh, I, this is really disturbing. I think the moral of the story is don't necessarily believe that martial artists are of any higher character than, than average anybody yeah, else absolutely well just because you know, of the belt there, there, and this the is something that i get on my horse about and i'm going to ride it right now yes please go ahead is when people go yeah you know jujitsu will make you better martial arts will make you better i'm going you know only if you are looking to be better right right because right. i know people that were assholes before they started doing martial arts and you know what years later they're still assholes they're just more technical and maybe dangerous, yeah. you know what I mean? That whole, uh, you know, jujitsu is for everyone. And then, you know, a year later, it's for about a tenth of that. Yeah. Ten years down the road, it's for a few rare savages, you know what I mean? It, uh, we, we tend to, to get out there and, and careful to believe your own marketing hype, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I truly believe, like, everybody can benefit from martial arts, you know what I mean? I've had my mom and dad trained with me, I, I, you know, kids, family, everybody. I mean, I'm, but it's not for everybody. Right. You know, and not uh, everybody is for it. I yeah. I think that's what it is. Exactly. Didn't, I, I love, I like, that to yeah, me. no, yeah. I really like the way you said that. And, and, uh, I, but we can, preach the ideals and i try to make sure that uh you know i want to have a culture on you know in my school and and on my team and affiliates that's one thing i really pride myself on is having that um kind of sense of being better you know Mm -hmm. being more you know we do get to go out there we're helping people get in better shape we're teaching people how to defend themselves which a lot of times for a lot of people just means giving them some self-confidence helping them feel uh helping them feel good about themselves, you know? Mm. So there's, there, there are definitely a lot of positive attributes, but to that blanket statement of, Oh, you know, you're a good person. Cause no, not necessarily. We've I all mean, seen I, karate kid. If you've met me, you know, <laughs> yeah, it so, doesn't make knee, you a better Johnny. person. Um, yeah. I, and I think like the benefits too, you're going to find the benefits that you, that you want, that you're looking for out of it. If you want, to be better at hurting people, then you're going to be, be better, better at yeah. hurting people. If you want to be better at a sport or at a mar- as a martial artist, if you want to lose weight, you'll find those things. Yeah. Um, we should probably start wrapping it up. Though. Okay. You have an announcement. You don't even know you have an announcement. 
I don't know how to announce it. Uh, Cole's podcast. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm glad you shout that out. Yeah, I was actually wanting to do that. I'm glad you brought I know it up. I did. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, one of, our, one of our buddies, Cole Miller, who's a UFC veteran, just started um, – him and I went through the combatives course at the Air Force Academy, which I saw is that 7,200 with him in the feet. neck brace. Dude, how funny is, is it? A high a, elevation? Is that why he had the neck brace on? That's his beard. That is actually <laughs> his beard. Yeah. Um, dude, I thought that was hilarious. But yeah, so Cole and I, he was one of the only civilians to go through the uh, Air Force combatives course. So he started a podcast now. So uh, for you guys out there who do listen to podcasts and are looking for a good one to check out, uh, you can check out his. It's actually called the MMA podcast. That's oh, all. Is that called. all it is? Yeah, it's just called the MMA that podcast. <laughs> Who would have thought that I that know. wasn't taken yet? I know. It may be, I don't know, but uh, you can go check it, him out. You know, obviously Cole Miller on Instagram, and then he's got uh, Miller Martial Arts on Instagram as well. And he's he's pushing the podcast on both of those. Uh, his first episode just got released. He's got his brother Micah on there, who is also a uh, Bellator fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so He's uh, a pride fighter too. I, I uh, yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. So cool. Cole and his brother both come from a pretty strong background of fighters. You know, Cole was a, was basically a pro baseball player. So he's been a professional athlete and his brother's a, a pro athlete. So they have some pretty good genetics there, um, out of Georgia. And so, yeah, go check them out and, um, give them a shout. Let them know you, you listen to them. And, and, you know, we always, and the hammer cast, we don't want to forget those guys yeah, either. The Hammercast. So anytime we can pump those guys. We uh, also have to shout out, uh, cruise combat. We have a discount code, the rough and tumble with the ampers hand. That's the and symbol. I'm going to yep. educate everybody on what everyone's going to use the means. asterisk if they do. Yeah. 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 She thought it was the at symbol. Yeah. Um, ampers hand is what it's called. It's the and symbol. Rough and tumble. Is and that's R-O-U-G-H because I have <laughs> yeah. been asked so many times. Is it Rough Riders? R-U-F-F? R-Y-D-E-R-S? You know, and like, it's, it, I don't know why that is something that, that people thought we would do, but no, it's the actual word, rough. Yeah. Go check out, um, you, if you listen to the podcast, look at the freaking logo I know, it's yeah. above the podcast. Yeah. Um, so go use the discount there for, I think it's 15, 20% off of their products. You can get it. Um. Custom printed up shorts, custom printed t-shirts. They have printed t-shirts that they have designs on already. Same thing with shorts. Um, they do all of my gym shorts, which I think are fantastic. All of my rash guards, which are um, outstanding. So go check that out at cruisecombat.com. Use the uh, discount code rough and tumble, all capitals with the ampersand. And uh, let us know how you like it. And Mr. Jing, thank you so much. It's a huge Bro, honor to have yeah. you on. Hey, I appreciate it. I really enjoyed hanging out and visiting with you For guys. For sure, man. It, it was, was awesome. A- uh, yeah, I wish we had more time. There was a whole much more stuff I, w- I would have loved to talk about. So hopefully we'll get you back in. Well, I know time. the guy. So. Love yeah, to. I think we have a connection, so yeah. it works out. It does. Uh, he can he can get us back here. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, I, I haven't had a chance to talk to you before. We've crossed paths and you know through different tournaments and stuff like that, but never really got to sat down. Uh, and so I was I was really happy to get the opportunity to be able to ask questions and, and pick your brain Great. about stuff. So thank you. Yeah, I've got um, tremendous amounts of respect for you, author, multiple. Uh, Multiple black belts. How many black belts do you have all together? Six. Six. Um, you've you've fought before. Fighting was a thing. You know, you were on ESPN um, fighting when kickboxing was still cool, um, and then it went through a weird phase. And now it's becoming cool again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you, you know, back when back when those guys like uh, when you saw like the badass kickboxing in the seventies, where everybody was like, "Holy shit, this is awesome!" and they wanted to jump into it. Mr. Dring was in the middle of that and uh, and, and knocking fools' heads off. Um, and you're just a master of fucking people up and I love it. Like (laughs) you're just messing people up. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, and we'll have you on again, uh, sometime in the near future. So appreciate it. All right.